0: Good morning, beloved. How do you like being called beloved every time I get up here, right? (laughs) That's who you are. I'm sorry, but that's who you are. You're the beloved of the Lord. So I'm Bill Smith. I'm one of the teachers here at New Hope Chapel, and I count it as a privilege and an honor to be able to speak before you today to bring God's word to you, hopefully a message that would be useful to you. I didn't know that Barb was going to give that message, and after I heard that, I'm like, well, I'm done. I'm out of here. <laughs> I'm never going to look at the American flag the same way, that's for sure. One thing I'm reminded also about the blue is the blue is also the color that royalty wears. So if anybody is looking for Jesus in heaven, he'll be the only one who's wearing any blue on him. No one else will have that. Okay, I think it'll be easier to recognize than that. So let's have a word of prayer before we start. And there is a a memorial service this afternoon for Andrew and for Val's family. But I would like us to take a moment here just to also as a body to lift them up in prayer. Okay, so let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we know who you are and we know your names. And we call upon your name now. The name that comes to our minds the mighty one, the powerful one, the king of kings, the lord of lords, and the comforter, the provider, the giver of peace, the prince of peace. And we lift up as a body part of our family who is suffering now, Lord. We lift up the Nebia family and, and the Bashe family. We pray that you would be with them and remind them that you are still near You have not gone anywhere. And that we, in the midst of this tragedy, can also be reminded that you also give us hope because of our faith in you and because of the love that you bestowed upon us in our hearts. So, as we grieve with this family, we also are encouraged to know that Andrew is with you safely in heaven. And now, we, as a body of believers, as their brothers and sisters, are eager to step forward in whatever way you wish to use us to be a blessing to this family. And now, Fathers, we enter this time of, of exploring your word. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight because you are our rock, you are our redeemer. For it's in Jesus' name we pray and for his sake. Amen and amen. Thank you. So, we're continuing on on part three of a four-part series about living a balanced life in Christ, or we might call it living a calm, confident, compassionate life in Christ, as Steve was mentioning earlier. So, this is the third part. So, to go back for those who are here for the first time, just a really quick review. We talked the first Sunday about the importance of those three being in balance, and that if any one of them is out of balance, the other two are affected by that. So we talked about confidence. And if we lack confidence, it might be hard for us to be calm, and so on. And so each of those three then also needs to be in balance, and so we talked last Sunday about confidence and that if we're out of balance, we could become too confident, which is arrogance or pride, and pride being the chief sin that we can commit as Christians, and it's the one that's the most unconscious to us. We so slip easily into that, or at least I do a lot. And lacking confidence is timidity, and God is not interested in His children, the sons and daughters of the King of Kings, which makes us prince and princesses walking around timid. Royal family members don't do that. Next Sunday, we'll talk about compassionate. And there's such a thing as being too compassionate, which sounds odd, but I'll explain that, or lacking compassion, to be indifferent. But today, we're going to talk about the importance of being calm, or I'll also use the word content in the Lord, and that lacking calmness or or, uh, being too calm can be a problem because it also can affect the other two. So for example, if we're too content in our external circumstances, that can result in not getting involved in building God's kingdom. On the other hand, lacking contentment can cause us to become too dependent on our circumstances. And when things go wrong, uh, we might lose our confidence in God and our compassion for others. So as a reminder then, the three of these are representing three orientations or focus. We talked that we're going to talk next week about being compassionate. That's our focus on others and our relationship with others. Last week we talked about confidence, and that's really our relationship with ourselves and with the Lord. And today we're going to talk about how we're oriented towards our external circumstances. So our goal today then is to understand how Scripture talks about contentment and begin to apply God's Word in order to learn how to be content. In all situations, So our passage that we're going to be building from and taking apart today is out of Philippians, the fourth chapter. So let's all read this together. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, Or received, or heard from me, or seen in me, put it into practice. And the peace... I rejoice greatly in the Lord, that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know, and I know... I have learned the secret of being content in every and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Amen. Very encouraging passage for us, isn't it? Probably one that if you want to memorize anything, this would be a good one, okay? So, today we're going to focus on this idea of being content. And he says, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. So this word content in the Amplified Bible talks about satisfied, sense of satisfaction, to the point where I'm not disturbed or disquieted. The Greek terms that are used in the New Testament for this idea of contentment are basically hard for me to pronounce, but they have to do with there's enough for me. I have sufficient strength or contentment, satisfaction in what one has or is found in as in circumstances or situations. And so it means satisfied to the point where I don't want change. No, it does not mean that. There's <laughs> are like, yeah. no, I know that some of us have difficulty with change, but that's not what contentment means, okay? So in that passage we just read, Paul talked about concern, that it's okay to be concerned. So when we talk about contentment or to be content, We're talking about a sense of calmness or satisfaction, but it also means to be interested in or concerned about things. So if we lack intent, we're we're too content, I'm sorry, too content, well, that might look good, but the problem is that's also apathetic and passive and complacent and, and, and unresponsive. And we're going to see here a little bit later, God is not interested in any of that right there. On the other hand, if we, are, uh, if we lack contentment, we are discontent, and that produces neediness or dis- easily distracted by things because something else is better. Remember, we talked last week about pride doesn't rejoice in having enough. Pride rejoices in having more than other people. Or we become worried about lots of things or anxious about things. So... That passage in in Philippians 4 started out with, Rejoice in the Lord when things go well, right? No, that's not what it said, okay? (laughs) Those are the only tricky slides I have. All the rest is (laughs) straightforward. So you don't go, yeah, that's right. No, that's wrong. (laughs) I thought it was right. Okay. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I will say it. And now notice that exclamation point. So let's say that last word together with the exclamation point. Rejoice, okay? Well, you don't say the exclamation point, unless you're talking to Siri. (laughs) You're doing a little too much uh, texting with Siri, I think, right? Whatever the circumstances are, whatever they are. James tells us the same thing. He says in the first chapter and the second verse, Consider pure joy. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces good stuff, produces perseverance. Now, I remember when the Lord first gave me that verse? You know what I mean by "gave you a verse"? Anybody had Lord gave you verses? You know, it's like this verse was just for you, not for all the other billions of people ever. Just for you. That's I mean, that's how self-oriented. We can be right. But that's one that I was going through some stuff and the Lord showed me your reaction is wrong. To rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. When things are going wrong, rejoice. Really? Because if we do the opposite, we're being just like the world. That's the mark of a Christian. Like something's wrong with that person. <laughs> things are going wrong and yet they seem to have something that I, I wish I had. The next part I want to talk about in that verse is this idea that Paul says, I learned. This is something that He learned to do it wasn't something that he had the moment he got saved and it's something that we don't have when we first get we get a lot of cool stuff but we don't get contentment because of where we came from so paul learned contentment and this is paul we're talking about right he learned it which means what when he first came to know the lord maybe he didn't have it as where that what he ended up with So contentment is not something we're born with. It is learned. And to learn it, we must unlearn some other things. We must unlearn that contentment comes from our circumstances. We must unlearn that contentment comes from our possessions. We must unlearn that contentment comes from our relationships. And that might be a hard one, but it doesn't come there. Contentment does not come from what you have. It comes from who has you. Amen? Praise the Lord. So... We basically learned life wrong as we were growing up, didn't we? And the reason we did is because we have an enemy. And that enemy is ADD. He's the accuser, deceiver, and destroyer. And he set about from the day we were born. You like that one? Accuser, deceiver, Yeah. I have other worse names for him than that, and I have no problem <laughs> calling them those names. You want to call anybody names, call that scumbucket names. Okay? He's the most evil father of lies. I have nothing good to say about him. Okay, get back on track here. This enemy, because we have a brain that's part of the earth, has access to the brain, and so he begins to program us, and he might even use family members. So, for example, if you were raised in a family where maybe one of the parents tended to overreact to things and worry about a lot of things and a lot of nail-biting as a child, what are we learning about how we should react to our external circumstances? Or you might have another parent who seems disinterested in everything and nothing bothers and they don't get involved. But enough about my parents. Anyway. <laughs> but you learn these things from what's around you. You don't know. I mean, I always like to say children, little kids are idiots. They don't know what's going on. No offense, Liam, you're not. But the rest of them, we're just, we're just learning. And our enemy is, is orchestrating the situation all the time to try to get us to be dependent on the thing we should not be dependent on. To be dependent on our exer- external circumstances or... Um, as uh, C.S. Lewis talked about in the Scroope Taped Letters, to just you know forget it. You know I'm not even going to get involved. So we learned to be discontent. It's it's I'm not saying it's not our fault, but it's not our fault. We just learned that. And so the beauty of coming into Christ is to undo that, because we didn't actually learn to have gratitude. We learned to have an attitude, right? And I see some of the wonderful parents in this church teaching their children to say simple things like. Thank you. You got that? Thank you. I already have a flag. Now you have another flag. Okay, be thankful for the flag. (laughs) My wife back there, say thank you. Say thank you. So Paul said, I learned to be content, but he also threw a little couple words in there. He said, I learned the secret to being content, didn't he? I learned the secret. And I think the secret is, is earlier and when he was talking about do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving, present your request to God. I'm, I'm so reminded of uh, Bishop P. D. Jakes talking about when Jesus fed the 5,000 and he lifted the, the bread and the fish, and he gave thanks for that which was not enough. <laughs> and the point he makes is that until you 're ready to give thanks for what you have, which doesn't appear to be enough. You're not going to get any more. Why would I give you more stuff not to be thankful for? Right? I love that. And so we're encouraged in Philippians that if we do that, this previous slide, to present our prayers with thanksgiving, we get this. It's the peace of God which passes understanding. You can't even explain it. We were just talking about this the other day, and somebody said, I just can't explain it, but I just had this peace. I understand that peace. It's not our own peace. We'll guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So there's some other clues in there about how to keep from worrying or becoming too content. And he throws this little phrase in there which seems also almost out of place. He says, the Lord is near. Let's all say that. The Lord is near. Remember that whenever you're starting to feel a little bit overwhelmed, just say out loud, the Lord is near. Because you're speaking the truth. Because he is near, isn't he? So we really can't control our circumstances. We can only be prepared to respond to them. And I know there's some of us here, and sometimes it's me, can become, appear to be a bit of a control freak, right? If somebody accuses you of that, you say, I'm not a control freak, I'm a control enthusiast, okay? (laughs) I'm really enthusiastic about it, trying to control things. The irony of all that is, if you think you have any control, it's just an illusion, (laughs) you know? It's not really there. There's only one person that's in control. And we all know his name, which is above every other name. His name is Jesus, in case you haven't heard of him. okay. All we can do is be prepared to respond to what's going on. The thing is, we really can't respond to things if we've got our heads sort of suck in the sand. Uh, years ago when I was in the Air Force and I had my opportunity for my first helicopter ride, and so we get on the helicopter, and we all had these headphones they gave us and a little mi- microphone and a little button we could push. And the pilot told us, now, when we're in the air, it's safer if everybody is looking out for, for what we're doing. So if you see it, report it. And I'm like, cool, I can talk directly to the pilot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what I noticed, though, was that our, our boss, the general, the commander was on the flight with us who had many more flying hours than everybody else there. I wasn't a pilot, but... I noticed that oh, about every minute or two, he was pointing out something else, and I became amazed at how attentive he was to his external environment. Not that he was worried about it, but he had a healthy concern about it. And he says, "We got some, we got some, uh, some geese down on the lake there to the right." I'm like, "Yes, so." <laughs> and he point out later, "Well, whenever you see birds on the lake and they hear a plane, they tend to fly up, and then right into the plane." So he's Concerned about that, I began to realize, okay, I don't want to be a pilot. <laughs> so to be concerned, to be real. And so in times of sadness or times of joy, it's, it's good and okay to be expressive. One of the things we've got to be watching out for is putting on a happy face for everybody else because that's a form of lying as well. So to be concerned about things or interested in things is perfectly fine. It's when you do too much of either one that becomes a problem. And so when you lack uh, any interest in what's going on, we become complacent. I think it's it's healthy to think about what I call a balanced theology of what we call works, right? So on one end, we have those who look at works as the salvation. I'm working out my salvation with good deeds. I'm trying to keep God from getting disappointed or mad with me. And by the way, the reason I'm doing this is before I got saved, you know how I got acceptance from other people? I performed for them. And now I'm saved and I think I'm supposed to perform for God, forgetting that God performed for us. And so what they do is, and I I will tend to judge others because they're not performing to my level of expectation like I'm performing. Um, I'll worry about a lot of things and I'll tend to analyze things to death in my hope to try to control the situation. And I call these folks affectionately the agitators and and accumulators. They're agitating everybody else, and they're accumulating a lot of good deeds, thinking they're somehow going to exchange those when they get to heaven, I guess. On the other end, we have those who become disconnected from the idea of having to do any works at all. I'm saved. I'm good to go. I'm going to heaven. I don't have to, to prove that through my works. I'm free to sit back and enjoy the good life. It's sort of like the retired Christian, right? <laughs> My dear brother back here just retired from, as, a, as a fireman for how many years were you there, David? 30 years. Let's give him a round of applause. 30 years serving a community. But I know David pretty well. He loves the Lord, and I know he's not retiring to sit around and relax, right? <laughs> he's going to be doing stuff. And so this kind of person's kind of saying, I wish the church would just leave me alone. Okay, I got my salvation, I'm good to go. And uh, I call these folks the spectators and commentators of the church. And um, by by way of saying that, I can tell you that I've been in both of these. Okay, now I still get in both of them from time to time, but I was really in this when I first came to know the Lord, because I learned to get acceptance by performing. And so when I get saved, well, then I got to do good works for the Lord, because there's stuff in the Bible about doing works there. And you can take any word out of context and then have a theology around do good works, because if you don't, Jesus is going to get mad at you, right? And then, after eight years of being a Christian, we went to a victorious Christian living conference, Beth and I did, and wow, we realized we kind of had this all wrong. And he used to say, you're off the hook. So then I went over here. (laughs) I don't have to do any works. I might go to church if I feel like they're going to deserve me to be there, you know and then i began to see that there's somewhere in between that and that would be i'm saved by faith not by my works however because of that i'm free to do good works in the lord that's important good works in the lord do them outside the lord those will burn up you do them in the lord there's a benefit to that and i would encourage others because work is not an obligation not a responsibility it's an opportunity and a privilege because when you do works in the lord well just think about that when you're doing works in the lord who are you working with (laughs) who's working with you i know we can experience god in prayer and that's a great place to experience god but when you're done praying and you start doing the work you can still experience him working through you that's the benefit the blessing of that i call these folks the liberators the activators (laughs) of the rest of the church uh Going back to this idea of complacency, I just wanted to share with you the the best movie that's ever been made, ever, is the movie Life with Father. And if you want to debate that, you can step outside. I'm not going with you, but you can step outside. And Life with Father, with um, William Powell and Irene Dunn, I've probably seen this two or three thousand times and laugh harder every time I see it. And it's actually based on a true story about Clarence Day. His son wrote the book, and um, it it was made into a Broadway play that prior to a chorus line was the longest-running play in Broadway. And it's about this man, Clarence Day, who's a rather wealthy banker, but he's also, you know, he runs the house, and what he says goes, and they're out to dinner with family, and somebody brings up, uh, actually Elizabeth Taylor is in the movie, he's a young girl, she brings up, Baptism and asks him which he wh- was wh- baptized in which faith because that's an important thing to her, Methodist or Episcopalian. My mother was the Methodist, she says. <laughs> She's upset about that. So um, he says, Well, come to think of it, I've never been baptized. Well, when his wife Vinnie hears this, she's mortified she says claire don't even joke about such things he, no Vinny, i wasn't I, my parents were free thinkers they left it up to me i've never been baptized well, the rest of the movie is about her scheming to try to figure out how to get him baptized because in her mind they might not even be married <laughs> and then it occurs so when she's looking at her children oh, the children are illegitimate so she's scheming about this and tries a lot of different ways and of course he dismisses her that's for children And then he discovers that she's also apparently talked to the pastor about it, because on the next Sunday, he gives a sermon on baptism. And he talks about this, and how could a grown man not want to be baptized? Well, he's sitting there in the congregation listening to this, and the more it goes on, it's slowly dawning on him. This sermon is about him. And actually, he was known during the service in real life, if he didn't like what the pastor was saying, he would start to argue with him from the pew. And so when he begins to realize, and you see this face, and he says out loud, what the devil is he up to? <laughs> well, Vinny hears that, and she says to the boys, tell your father, shh. He goes all the way down the line. Mother says, shh. And he looks down at her, and she looks at him, and so he shuts up. And when they get home, he wants to let her have it. And he's talking about this and trying to tell her he doesn't need to be baptized and so on. And this is the conversation that ensues. He says, I don't go to church to be preached at as though I were some lost sheep. And she says, Claire, you don't seem to understand what the church is for. And he says, Vinny, if there's one place the church should leave alone, it's a man's soul. (laughs) You see, he was actually a wealthy contributor to the church. He won every Sunday. But that's it. In fact, another scene where she's talking about he went to get rid of his old suits and she's going to donate them to the church so they can send them to the missionaries. He didn't want to, no, they shouldn't be getting those hot and tots, he calls them. They're sort of begging off the church. They should be earning a true living. So he was very complacent about what's going on. Now, God is not interested in complacency, it's not a form of faith or uh, contentment. In Zephaniah, uh, the, the Judah has is gone far from the Lord. They're continuing to worship the prophet Baal, the god of nature, and um, was it Molech? Molech's spelled a couple different ways. And uh, he says, at that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent, who are doing nothing about what's going on here, worshiping the wrong God. And they will be like wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. Their wealth will be plundered, their houses demolished. Though they build houses, they will not live in them. Though they plant vineyards, they will not drink the wine. So complacency is not a form of calmness or contentment in the Lord. He's not interested in that. So the word complacent means to be showing smug or uncritical satisfaction. Nothing wrong to be satisfied, but also to be critical of that with oneself or one's achievements. And so we read in Philippians, Paul says. <laughs> Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice to do something with that. We also read in Romans 12, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted. A lot of verbs here. (laughs) Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving God. The Lord, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Love wants to do something. When you have love shed abroad in your heart, you'll want to do something. Beth recently read a book called Love Does. And this book has really affected her. If you want a copy, just ask her about it. You will have a copy in about two days. I've never seen her give so many copies of a book out and we have a warehouse full of them now (laughs) but she's right i i read the book while i listened to it on tape but uh he makes a good point he says so we stopped having bible studies we have bible doings (laughs) to move forward so we read in proverbs the way of the lazy is a hedge of thorns but the path of the upright is a highway easy to move forward so sometimes we're not able to move forward in life you look at what's the degree of complacency or laziness are you waiting for something we also read in Ephesians, look carefully how you walk, how you live your life, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. And I think it almost goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway, if you're not seeing that the, the evil that's going on now in the world and infiltrating in very subtle ways, you've got your head in the sand. And so I'm I'm encouraging us all to keep praying, not just for our country, but I would pray for Muslims, okay? Because the Lord wants to save them as well, to pray for them. This battle that is a spiritual battle that we're in. But don't worry about it. You'd be concerned about it, but you don't have to worry about anything, right? Don't be anxious for anything, he says in Philippians. And I've said this before, and I'm going to say it again. Worrying is the worshiping of our fears not of the lord so worry is to give way to anxiety or unease and watch this to allow to get permission to our mind to dwell on difficulty or troubles okay i'm not going to ask to see a show of hands but i think we might have one or two hands beside mine we go up and go i think i do that a little bit right and when we do that we get all these things here agonizing over things fretting over things overanalyzing, analysis paralysis there's the hedge of thorns uh, brooding, panicking, overthinking things. Worry never solved anything or prevented anything from happening. Mark Twain said, I had a lot of worries in my life, most of which never actually happened. The problem is worrying about them causes you to experience them anyway in your system. <laughs> so you think you prevented it, but you experienced it from happening anyway. So I think it's always good once in a while to remind ourselves that we're really existing in two worlds. <laughs> There's the physical world, and there's also the spiritual world. And we read in Scripture, in Colossians, for example, says that Jesus, is the, the Son, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him. And I like this last phrase, and for him. Not for us, for him. We are created for him. So fix your eyes not on what is seen, because you'll tend to worry about those things, but fix your eyes on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So I want to go uh, back to uh, the Old Testament into uh, Kings, and take a look at Elijah. You all heard of Elijah before, right? <laughs> he was one of the great prophets, wasn't he? Great, great man. So great, he gathered up all of the false prophets that uh, really were serving Jezebel. He brought them all together, 450 of them, and he killed them. And then Ahab, the king, who was a little bit intimidated by Elijah, goes and tells his wife Jezebel. <laughs> And it says, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. And then he was afraid. He got up and fled for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. He left his servant there, but he himself went even further a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a solitary broom tree, and he asked that he might die. It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. And then he laid down under the broom tree and fell asleep. Suddenly an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. Time to take action. Now, I don't know what a broom tree is. I don't have a picture of one because I relate more to this idea that sometimes we just want to crawl in a hole. You ever had that kind of, you get overwhelmed, you just want to, just want to crawl in a hole? <laughs> in fact, just this past week, one of my clients who I coach for his profession, he wanted to have that session to talk about what's going on in his life. I said, sure, whatever you want to talk about. Well, it turns out he and his wife are separated right now. And he said literally those words to me. He said, all I want to do right now is just crawl in a hole. Because when I ask her what she wants, she doesn't know what she wants, so I don't know what to do. So I asked him, well, what do you want? And he said, I want to crawl in a hole. <laughs> he kept saying that. So we came up with a better plan than that. <laughs> well, because there's been times when I want to crawl in a hole. Okay, I'm no I'm perfect person, but you just... I can't take any of this anymore sometimes. I just want to crawl in a hole or under a broom tree. So that's what Elijah did. Now, Elijah had a protege whose name was Elisha, a little different pronunciation, right? He's he's sort of his number two guy. And so um, Elisha ended up in a sort of a similar situation. He became a troubler of Israel as well. And so uh, they found out where he was at, and they sent the entire army didn't do like Jezebel. See, Jezebel sent a warning. Elisha doesn't get a warning. They just send an army surround the city where he's at. And in 2 Kings 6.15, let me make sure I get onto that slide there, uh, we read that when the attendant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, an army with his horses and chariots was all around the city. His servant said, Alas, master, what shall we do? And he replied, Do not be Afraid, exactly the opposite of his mentor. For there are more with us than there are with them. Then Elisha prayed, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the servant, and he saw. The mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Arameans came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, "Strike these people, please with blindness." He just asked for his servant's eyes to be opened, and now he asked for his enemy' eyes to be closed. And Elisha prayed to the Lord, and so he struck them with blindness as Elijah had asked. And then Elijah goes to them, and he says, "This is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek." And he led them to Samaria to their doom. This is, what, this is where George Lucas got, these are not the droids you're looking for. <laughs> That's where he got that from. These aren't, this is no way to say, okay, you take us to where we are because we can't see anything. So Elijah responds with fear. Elisha responds without fear. So what was the difference between the two? Well, I think the difference is right here. So when Elijah is, knows he's going to be taken up, you know, Elijah never dies, <laughs> He's just taken up to the Lord. So he knows it's going to happen that day, and he's making the journey. And each time at a certain point, he tells Elisha to remain behind. And Elisha says, I will never leave you. So he stays with him. It's like in the book of Ruth, right? I'm not going to leave you. And they come to this last river to cross, and Elijah takes off his coat, and he hits the water, and the water parts. So not just Moses did that. Elijah also did it. So they go across, and he says, stay here. I'm going on. And he says, I'm going to go with you. So he stays with him. And so Elijah asks, he says, when it had to cross the river, he says, now what shall I do for you before I'm taken from you? And Elisha says, please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. Interesting request he makes, right? And so Elijah's response is, okay, if you see me being taken up, then you will get a double portion. But if you do not see me being taken up, then you won't get that. You can't count on that. And of course he does see him taken up the horses, the chariots of God come down, separate the two men, and he watches him uh, go into heaven. Elijah gives him his his coat as well. Apparently don't need a coat in heaven, which is good. (laughs) So I think the difference is, and how I can be without fear, has something to do with the Holy Spirit. So When we take a look at complacency and worry, they're really the same thing. Complacency, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, what's the minimum I need to do? Because God's not interested in really working with me. He's distant from me. And worrying is, I depend on my external situation for peace. I must work to control it because I need to keep impressing God with my works because God is distant from me. It's the same thing. But we know that God is not distant from us. Jesus tells us in John 14, he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another comforter, counselor, helper, intercessor, advocate, strengthener, and standby, that he may remain with you forever. So notice the difference. When Elijah is getting ready to go to be with the Lord, he asks Elisha what he wants. When Jesus gets ready to go to the Lord, he doesn't ask us. He tells us, this is what you're going to get from me. And so we go back earlier to John 14, and he says... My peace, I live with you. It's my own peace. And I want to emphasize the word own. It's not some other peace that I'm creating and making up. It's the very own peace that I have that I give to you and bequeath you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Or in the amplified, stop allowing yourself to be agitated and disturbed. And do not permit yourselves to be fearful and intimidated and cowardly and unsettled. Why not? Because the Lord is near. He's right with us now, even in this room. So, this idea of learning contentment. It's not, we don't have it, we learn it. And so learning it comes from prayer, practice, and thanksgiving. If we wait for it to come, it's never going to show up. We learn that. I don't know how you learn, whatever you know how you learn things. However you learn things, that's if you want contentment, you got to do something in order to learn that. In the army, the way the army trains people is they have a process called see one, do one, teach one. (laughs) They show you how to do it, then they say, now you do it, now you teach everybody else to do it, right? I think that can benefit us, that we practice contentment. Even when we don't have a reason to practice contentment, you practice that. And we apply God's Word, both in how you think about things and also what you're saying, and ask to be filled with the Spirit. Then Ephesians 5.18 says, don't be drunk, Dissipation, but rather be filled with the Spirit. If you're starting to feel anxious or you're starting to feel complacent, ask the Lord to fill you with your Spirit. And then you can quote these Scriptures. Every week I'm going to give you God's Word because I said, it's the only thing I got for you. That's the bad news. I only have this one thing. The good news is it's the most powerful thing that you can possibly have in your life. So we're going to say these together. Just to, you don't have to say, Juan, don't say the actual reference here, okay? <laughs> Let's say together, I already have a sound mind. I rejoice always, even during troubles. The Lord is near me now. I have a peace that passes understanding. I am content and I am thankful. Apply God's Word into your life. Say it out loud, read it, think on it, dwell on it. Let it massage your soul so that you can move to this place where you're living in this balanced life of having a sound mind and power and love, or as we might say, you're living a calm, confident, and compassionate life. So as by way of benediction, let us pray. You who dwell in the shelter of the Lord shall abide in his shadow for life and say to the Lord, you are my refuge, my rock in whom I trust And God will raise you up on eagles' wings. He will bear you on the breath of dawn, and he will make you to shine like his sun, and he will hold you in the palm of his hand. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen. Amen.